Welcome to the Grief Cocoon podcast, where you'll hear open, honest, and thoughtful conversations about grief and loss, death and life. I'm Gabby, your host, and I'll be talking to different creatives about their experiences and how they've used their creativity to process and transform grief and loss, and how you can too. This podcast was recorded on the sacred and sovereign lands of the Bunwarung and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to offer my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people listening today. In this episode, I speak to Peter Murray, who is best known as a playwright, but also as a writer of short stories and essays, a freelance dramaturg, director, and occasional performer. Through her writing and performances, she has explored topics such as death, dying, grief, and aging. She also co-founded The Groundswell Project, a not-for-profit arts and health organization focused on challenging Australia's culture of medicalized, institutionalized death and dying, and promoting a public health approach to deliver increased agency and broader choices at end of life. Peter was a mentor and soundboard for me in my very early years of community-based grief work. I've always admired her courage in using humour and wit to explore themes that most people would be too scared to laugh about. This conversation starts with me asking Peter when she started exploring the themes of death, grief and dying and what she thinks might have led to that. Look, I didn't realise I was doing it in some ways until I had a sufficient body of work behind me um, and got to a point where I was able to reflect on motifs and different kinds of recurring ideas. Um, But in my early life as a playwright, one of the first gigs I ever had was a commission from Tow Truck Theatre in Sydney. And at that time they were working with kids, they were taking shows into schools, remember the little vans that used to come around with a show, and um, and they commissioned me. It was actually the first commission I was ever offered and they pretty much gave me carte blanche to write whatever I wanted to write. Hmm. And for some reason I chose to write a play called Spitting Chips, which is about a teenage girl who is dealing with the death of her mother hmm. and um, the absenteeism of her father from her life because of his grief. So he, his grief, he turns into workaholism and her grief turns into anger and that's why it's called spitting chips. That's that hmm. idiomatic expression for, for being really angry. So I wrote that fairly early in my writing life and then as I went on, I was offered a commission, another commission for um, a play about death, uh, commissioned by the Hospice Society of South Australia for an international conference. It was one of the first held in Australia about hospice and palliative care. And the more I went on, the more I just realised that this was something that just kept coming through and asserting itself in my work and it was something that I deeply needed to examine Taking the second commission was terrifying because it involved going to um, Adelaide and hanging around at a hospice for a while. And I guess my, you know, I'm answering two questions at once here, but one thing that I have sort of stood by as a writer is if it makes you scared, do it. And the other thing was that I started to realise that there was a bit of a hole in me that hadn't been mended. And it was around lots of different kinds of grief and loss. At first, I thought it was to do with the way my grandmother's death occurred when I was about 
probably 19 or 20 and how removed from that I was. But it's only been in the last few years that I've realised how close, how closely death touched my family when I was much, much younger. And I didn't really start to tell this story until a couple of years ago when I was performing my work Vigil Wake. But I had uh, cousins, twin cousins, one of whom was born with profound disability and she, the other one died at birth. So I was about six or seven probably when this was going on in my family and I don't remember it being anything that was spoken about I do vaguely remember being taken to a hospital and being sort of left in a playground while my parents went into a ward. But I feel like it, it was a real revelation when, I, when this hit me a couple of years ago that, that this, you know, what would it have been like? Um, I'm a little kid. I've been told I'm getting new cousins plus their twins. I'm about, you know, I'm really small and then into this world of which already has cousins in it and I know cousins to be a good thing, you know. And then this this great silence, this great secrecy descends, not just about the, the death of the first child but then the prolonged illness and and slow goodbye of the second one, her sister. So I feel like these things must have, you know, gone through my family and of course they make they touch you in profound ways whether you have the words for them or not so I feel like this constant drawing that I have to try to understand death or to to grapple with grief has very very early origins and I've really enjoyed listening and and watching some of your work as well and um, I've noticed that you know, in well, in in the pieces that I've seen or read, there's always sort of a um, a hint of a humorous tone to it, and so I was just wondering whether that was a conscious choice, and you know, why did you choose to to talk about these subjects, which most people would see as very serious in that way? Oh, look, I could answer that question for the next three weeks. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but I think levity and gravity belong together. So lightness and weighty things belong together. They are they are on a, a kind of a, a, a fulcrum with one another. I don't think you can have one without the other. So there's something in me that knows that. I think I also value humour. I value it in other people. I value it in myself. I see it as a way of making people safe. People come closer when you can create a safe space and one of the quickest ways to do that is to make people laugh together. You know, they're all putting their air into, well, between and through their masks, um, into the space. And something about that eruption of laughter and the kind of involuntary nature of it and what it does to your breathing, you know, it's a, it's a somatic thing as well. All of those different components of it mean that humour and getting a laugh out of people is a really useful thing to do. I do it with my teaching all the time. It's one of the first things I try to do and it's almost like I'm taking a reading of the class, you know, what, what makes them laugh, how quickly can I, can I get them laughing, who's not laughing. I can learn a lot about a group of people through that mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, as for me, 
you know, if a day goes by and I don't laugh about something, I get sad. I really do feel like I need laughter. I need it in my life. I had a beautiful grandfather who was, I think of him, now when I think about him, I call him Happy Harry. And he was just a jolly man. And it wasn't forced or false or anything like that, but he just had this kind of radiant joy in him. Mm. And he seemed to be glad to be around every day and happy to see us. And I think as I get older, I turn more and more into Happy Harry. And I'm quite pleased with, with that. Really, you know, if I if I'm kind of laughing on my deathbed, I'll be pretty pleased with myself. And I I know that you're really great at wordplay. I've seen you create dictionaries of <laughs> words that didn't exist before. Uh, I noticed on you you have a COVID dictionary. I do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so you you really you're really playful with with um, the English language and with words. And so I was. Wanting to ask, you know, how important it, is it to find language around grief and around end-of-life experiences? These are such great questions and I think the reason they're so great is because they point to the paradoxes of this and they were two plosive consonants side by side there so there'll be a bit of popping probably down the mic. Um, I think you can't find words for these things you can only put words around them. You can swaddle the experience in words in some way. Um, and I've, you know, words are a consolation to me. They are something I play with. I love, I love language. I love our language. I love others' languages. I love languages that are just coming into view. I love dead languages. I'm learning Scottish Gaelic at the moment for no reason. No one will ever speak to me in this language. But there is something about the words as a material and their stretchiness and their sonic, I think it's the sound of them, to be honest, and it's great to be talking about this on a podcast because there is something about the human voice, about utterance, about speaking together. You know, in the show we worked on together, there's sort of communal speech and all of those kinds of things that we don't get to do very often, um, but they're very potent forms of, of ritual. And I guess language for me is part of m my ritual practice as well and finding new words for things or subversively using old words and repurposing them is, um, is a, again, it's a form of activism. It's a form of arts-based activism. And I guess if what ties all of this together so far in this conversation, art as activism. So I guess maybe I should then go to this question. What role does arts, does the arts have in actually shifting the culture around end-of-life conversations or about learning to live with loss and grief? I think it has a huge role. I think its role is only just fully being appreciated. I think we might have known it. We might have known more of it back in, you know, previous centuries in other cultures and in other times. But certainly in my culture, I think we have a kind of an amnesia about how art can support us and help us to make meaning of things that are so, that seem meaningless, that, that make other things seem meaningless. You know, how do you find, I've got some friends recently who have just, 
have just attended the dying of their three-year-old grandson who's been sick, you know, he's been sick and they've been there and they've been helping care for his sister and they've been by his side all the way through to the, to the end and the end has come. How do you make sense of that? How do you, how do you get up the next day and carry on? It's impossible to talk about that. But, but with art and with ritual, and for me those two things are kind of inseparable, you can make patterns and structures and shapes around the spaces that you can't speak to. And so that's what art is for me in this space. And I also, I really do believe in its power as an activist mechanism because I think, again, goes back to safety. You know, you can have a whole lot of people witness something together and they're not asked, nothing is asked of them. They simply witness. Mm -hmm. But the power of that, especially if it kind of bypasses the brain and hits them in the gut or hits them in the heart, is transformative and it, and it does give people, and they don't even have to have many words, just one or two, one or two words to start to try to unlock the weight of the experience, one or two words that start to try to honour the loss. I think a lot of it is about honouring the loss too. We're very much in this culture about, you know, quick, clean up, move on. And it doesn't work with death, you know, it doesn't work with dying. Um, it particularly doesn't work with premature death and dying. You know, some deaths we can kind of prepare ourselves for because they seem to be natural mm. in the scheme of things. But other times death takes us completely by surprise. And then there are all the metaphors for death as well. You know, it's not, we're not just talking about corporeal death. We're talking about COVID. We're talking about job loss. We're talking about relationship breakups. These are all deaths of one sort or another and we're not very skilled in our, in our fast-paced contemporary digitised world at sitting down with each other and sharing the, the pain of this, mm. the humour of it as well. You know, sometimes it can be funny um, and all of the other kinds of complex emotions that we are not great at dealing with. And so do you think art is part of the spark to actually start sitting with those things? I really do. I really do because it's approachable. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of unapproachable art as well, don't get me wrong, and I have time for that too. But the community art space, which is where I kind of reside, is approachable. The whole point of it is come, come one, come all, you know, let's, let's sit together and let's commune. There's that word again. Let's commune around this uncomfortable thing. We don't know, we don't know what to do about this uncomfortable thing. So let's just be together. Mm. Let's just be, it's almost animal, I think, to come together in these kinds of, of things. And I think art I mean, you know, as I say, I could go on and on and on about what art can do and, and what a waste it is that we are not allowing art to do what it can do. And I don't mean in an instrumental way. I don't mean that it's a utility. But I, I think that if we were more open to letting art wash through everything, I think a whole lot of things would be really, really different. Imagine if we had an artist in residence in the doctor's surgery Mm. or at the bank or the post office, you know, or um, on public transport. 
just having having everyday encounters with the artful and making and that's the other thing you know got me on my soapbox now you know, <laughs> you know sorry you asked that question but that's the other thing is i think we have we have divided art off and we've said no you can't do art cuz look you colored outside the lines um, and you can't do art cuz you can't you know you, your english isn't good enough um, and i think of art as being something that is an everyday mm element it's just about our creativity it's about expressing ourselves and if we don't express ourselves well what's the opposite of that we're suppressing things we're pushing them inside us and not giving them any air not giving them any light and um, that cannot be good for us and so before we um Finish up. I wanted to ask actually because you've you've been in in you've been sort of exploring um, death and and end of life and um, grief for a, quite a while. And I was just wondering whether since you know co-founding the Groundswell Project, whether you actually have seen a change and um, sort of progression in that space. I really do think we have. I think that you know the Groundswell Project came together in 2010. So here we are, um, you know, it, it's a good while on since then. And I honestly do believe that there is visible evidence of um, a heightened appetite, a willingness in the culture at large to at least look at these things and for many people to talk about them. I think that the fact of, that the voluntary assisted dying legislation has passed in so many states and now looking at territories as well also supports that contention. Um, but I do think that, you know, at an, at an everyday level, a lot more people have been engaged in this conversation. And I feel really proud, actually, to have been part of sort of the beginning of that enterprise. Um, and, and, you know, the Groundswell Project, its original version was art and health, art and death and dying. That was the whole. That was the equation that we worked with, um, and I think it, there's really good evidence there to show how cultural change can follow if you bring those kinds of things together. So I know you've brought in a. I don't know what it is actually. It's an excerpt or a piece of writing that. Um, you would like to share? I would, yeah. Um, it, it actually, when you invited me to think about doing something like that, I thought this is great because this, this piece that I'm going to read has been performed once <clears throat> by me at the end of the Pab Public Health Palliative Care International Conference that the Groundswell Project co-hosted in 2019. And the text that I'm going to deliver is actually composed of micro-texts from people who participated in my work, Vigil Wake. So, and it's like a poem and I'm going to try not to crinkle the pages, but I just thought what a great opportunity to record this, which is basically a poem written by, I think there were 440 people at the conference. So this is a poem by um, myself. I've curated this, the structure of it and the delegates of the Public Health Palliative Care International Conference 2019 and it's called An Elegy for Every Little Thing. Sit. Keep vigil. Receive this elegy for the neglected parts. 
Favourite words, saddest songs, the done and the undone, the mourned and the unmourned. The smells, the tastes and textures, the fabric of our little lives made cloth, made swaddling, made shroud. The hopes, the wishes, the love and love and love. A nice cup of tea, a smooth surfaced rock, vanilla ice cream with homemade custard, a seashell, flathead tails with duck fat chips, fine tuna carpaccio with chilli and lime, your family dog, my own skin, the love and love, home, garden, light, your mother's hands, the smell of babies. Up, up and leave a husband. Hugs, hamburgers, chips, daffodils and bush air and as we left the hospice, a dead cat. Three losses in one year. She was just gone and it wasn't discussed. Burnt toast, my bicycle. No regrets. Then slowly the sun rises, orange, pink. Surrender. Hospital sanitizer. Everything's fine. But what that man took from me, I regret, I regret, I regret. Grace and the smell of sage burning. That other time, that other space. Circles. The stories I have yet to tell. A raven's claw. A divine feather. My colourful earrings. The scent of jasmine in the night, a beach, any beach, sea, salt, black sand, wind, flame trees and cold chisel. His loss overshadows all others. Cab Sav and blue cheese, pungent, John, Paul, George and Ringo, I honestly don't know, my childhood. Perfumes, heady, Chanel number five, patchouli, a freshly mown lawn, my brother, my mother, my twin. My sister's best friend, my kitten, that Alsatian dog, that lamb I nursed caught in a flood, died anyway, some animal always dying, my auntie, so thin and pale, no one I knew. Then my mother left us, suddenly, and I never saw the body, the abortion, my guilt. I kissed my dead grandmother's face and smelled cut grass, earth, Damp, cool, I'm being followed by a moon shadow. Miscarriages, many. He died before they were born. She died in utero. She got in a taxi and disappeared. They went home to the old country. He turned his back. We divorced, a best friend, suicide, my dead baby, my infertility, my heart, my heartbreak. Oh, so many. I'm the queen of regrets. Wounds still made, still so raw. Prawns with avocado. Slow-cooked lamb, wood smoke, great shoes. Hiking boots. Fine jewellery. If they only knew. I did my best. It's all learning, right? For a vulnerable being. Yield. Go back. A grandmother's breakfast nook. 
tea in china cups and saucers, marmalade toast, tomato leaves and hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. That next grief undid me. Some friendships end in anger, yet still unfinished business. Make space for them, for her, for him to be family. I'm not sure I could have done anything else. To hold both my children in the back room, up in the trees and looking, looking at the river. Oh, a bird's nest. Hills, leafy trees, mossy rocks, fresh water, small horizon hugged and green, always green. Spanakopita, morsel of chocolate, crumbly shortcake biscuit and blue by Joni Mitchell. And knowing she saw me into the world and I saw her out, the smell of clean skin, a ball of amber glass, smooth, golden, clear, adagio, a rise and fall so perfect, I saw. Mourn me, then make a cuppa. Think of me as someone in Birkenstocks who always gave a shit, who sang loud and out of key, who cooked you a meal and then flogged you at Scrabble. Now to the wake. Joy. And there is a rhythm. Amazing grace. Serendipitous. Mangoes. Prawns and mangoes. A glass of bubbles. Expensive. French. Swimming pool blue and a radiant sun's delight. Petrichor. The word. The smell. Dirty rain on hot asphalt. Any beach in a storm, endless sky, hot red dirt, even those little flies, a schnitzel, a loaf of sourdough bread, any fruit in its season, a jacaranda, freesias, a waratah, mint bush, lime wood, exquisite. Silence, diaphanous, like a church, a glass of water, a pebble, peace, stillness. And I loved fiercely, and I was driven by compassion and by kindness. And I took risks, and I was a pioneer, and I played with turtles in a sandbox, and I buried a mouse in a matchbox, and I breathed with you, and I sang with you, and I held you, and love, raspberries, Christmases, train tunnels in Berlin, Lush, damp, earthy ground, and birdsong, and love, and popcorn, and love, and roses, love, and yardly soap, love, and an open coffin, and love, and love, and fairy lights, and love, and love, and love, and lushness, and a grilled cheese sandwich, and an easeful death, and love. Amazing. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for sharing that. Pleasure. It's great to have it recorded somewhere. Mm. Mm, I really enjoyed listening to that. Thank you. And thanks for coming in today. Oh, I enjoyed it too. This episode was kindly supported by Footscray Community Arts through their Artists in Residence program. 
If you found this conversation valuable, then it would be great if you could leave a review or share it with a friend so that more people can find this podcast. Thanks for listening.